Hello and welcome to our second episode of Emma and Tom's PGCE podcast. We are on the move again. We were in Bolton last time uh, in our very hot travel lodge in glamorous Bolton and this time Emma we are somewhere different again. We are indeed. We are in my humble abode in sunny Margam. Sunny Margam. Are we going to attempt a sunny Margam accent? Maybe not. Um, I don't even think I could even define that. Yeah. So podcast number two, Tom. Podcast number two. Well, we're going to have a nice chat about um, what is coaching versus what is mentoring. That's our main subject of discussion this time. And we've got our usual bits, our well-being bit, our shout out bits, things to try. Um, probably some disasters along the way and uh, just see how it all turns out. So what has been happening in the world of Emma this week? Well, I I had some lovely time off last you did. week actually, um, which gave me a little bit of space and time to mull a few things over. Um, and I've got to say that the coaching and mentoring thing is something that has been going around in my mind for, for several weeks now. So I had a bit of time to to think about that and to have some really interesting conversations with my partner too who works in a completely different sphere but is going through leadership training at the moment so had some good conversations with him about all of this coaching and mentoring stuff too mm, and leadership cross, training cross fertilization yeah something that's often a little bit lacking i would say in the education world leadership training is just this kind of thing that you get promoted and best of luck to you which i know they're trying to change but but i know that other industries uh, do this stuff a lot better don't they so hopefully you can define for us what is coaching versus mentoring because i'm not sure everyone's going to know the difference We'll, we'll certainly try our best to to discuss it and have a think about it. Um, what about you, Tom? What have you been up to? Well, I didn't have any holiday last week. I was in doing various exciting things in work. And then, of course, we had graduation yesterday. We did. A big celebratory and very hot graduation ceremony down in the Millennium Centre. So waving off last year's lovely student teachers for the last time. Uh, it was all very good, um, processed in with great dignity to the sound of a harp all wearing our robes. I uh, sat down and promptly fell through a hole in the stage. So. <laughs> so you, and, you and two others. Me um... and several others, yeah. And that the cat-like reflexes of the lecturers either side of me were very impressive because I was just kind of aware that I was disappearing backwards into a hole. Um, and then I was aware I was being kind of lifted up by a strange kind of magic force that that stopped me going back. I mean, I I went back so little that I didn't even dislodge my silly hat. I I managed to keep that on my head and and just be kind of bundled back into an upright position. But yeah, for all the enormous amounts of money and effort that go into these, these ceremonies, the kind of trauma of the infant school nativity plays of our youth are never entirely <laughs> lost I think. it was all very theatrical uh slightly amdram a little bit um i don't know whether our listeners will get this reference but a little bit acorn antiques <laughs> at times yes um so yeah that was a it was a really it, there, it's always a lovely day isn't it, it graduation is. where it's we get to celebrate nice. the successes of our lovely cohort and start to think about now what we're going to do next year that's different. Yeah, and how we're going to kind of approach our job, which of course is trying to help these new members of the teaching profession find their feet and, you know, give them give them tips and ideas, but ask them questions and get the right balance between those things. And that is why we want to talk today 
about this role that we have, the role that the mentors in school have for our student teachers. Um, and I guess the role that the student teachers have when they're working with the pupils as well, to some extent, which is, are we a coach or are we a mentor? Agreed. Um, nice segue there, Tom. That was that was smooth <laughs> and impressive. I'm good. Well I'm done. Good. Um, yes. So it's probably worth us talking about what's sparked this for us both over the last few weeks. Now, obviously, we have worked as mentors and coaches ourselves in the past. We have indeed also been mentored and coached over the years um, throughout our careers. Um, working so closely with mentors in schools it's really important I think that we start to think about how we can develop that role with our mentors and ourselves actually because we go out into schools and we observe student teachers very regularly in our jobs so we're we you know that that mental coach I don't think it needs to be a dichotomy but no, Maybe. I mean, mentor is just the name we give the person in the school. And I wonder whether, given what we're about to say about, about the differences between those two words, it would be interesting to think, is it the right name for them? I mean, it just is their their job title, I suppose, with yes. us. But it's it's certainly an interesting question, that. And the other big question I think this raises is, what are the expectations of student teachers of, of what they're going to get from us? And I know that's something I've wrestled with as I've made the transition from being um, a, a school-based teacher and student teacher mentor through to being what they call a tutor, which is us in mm-hmm. school. And, you know, what, what do people want from me? What should I be giving them? And, and how does that kind of dovetail with what the mentor in school is going to give them? So all of these things we're going to try and unravel today agreed it's also worth saying as well that our external examiner who gave us a bit of an overview in our very recent exam board because they give us feedback um really valuable feedback actually and something that came up was about mentor training and about what we do with the mentors and how that mentor training helps to um shape their experiences and, and their role and helps them to help our teacher trainees. So that, that was also something that kind of was a catalyst for us to, to have this conversation. Okay, so something that was useful for both of us when we started thinking about this was to try and define the difference between what is a coach and what is a mentor. And we can look to the world of management for this, we can look to the world of sport for this. But an article that I came across from a teacher, someone called Andrew Jones, who has written a really lovely Guardian article all the way back in 2014 about this. And what he says is that few of us would be able to give a clear definition or comparison of the two, even though we have all, at some point in our teacher training careers, been coached or mentored. So I suppose what would be useful is if we kind of try and come up with a definition as we've kind of defined it ourselves. So to my mind, a mentor is somebody who is kind of in a position of seniority, is someone who instructs or advises, and is is kind of in a position where there there maybe you're in a transition in your career, so you're just about to start on your teacher training and education process, or you're maybe going from one role um, to a new role where you need to be given some very explicit and specific instructions. So a mentor is maybe somebody who is giving you very clear instructions about what to do and how to do it. 
So quite a hierarchical relationship then. Do this like I'm doing it. <laughs> yes. Whereas a coach is a slight, it kind of changes the, the sort of that hierarchy to placing you almost on an, sort of an even standing with the person that you are coaching um, and likewise the person who is being coached. So yeah, it's one that requires the coach to have mutual respect and a more kind of collaborative role with the person that they're trying to coach. So they don't feel like your boss then. Yeah, and actually we went to a really interesting talk from one of our colleagues from University of South Wales and he mentioned the significance of the role of the coach and he said that actually it's quite important for the person who is the coach to not also be the assessor, which is actually quite tricky for our mentors in schools because they exist in both of those roles. Yeah, it must be a really tricky one for them, isn't it? And, and we were talking earlier about the fact that as soon as you start to measure or assess something, it kind of adds something new. It, it changes the dynamic, it adds a bit of tension there. You're concentrating on getting those all important grades. So yeah, I suppose as soon as you're assessing or you're the boss or you've got some power over somebody, that coaching thing can be a little bit difficult. And I, I remember the guy from University of South Wales saying that, that in his world of doing this thing, he can't do it with his boss. Mm, agreed. And something that he stipulated that came through in his own research was that a coach shouldn't be judgmental. It's a non-judgmental position. It's just somebody who is there to collaborate, to ask good questions, to coach you into a position where you can find the answers yourself so it's kind of an, an emancipatory role we talked a lot about this um tom didn't we about how we really want to get our student teachers to a position by the end of the year where they don't need us they don't need us anymore we like to let them go out into the world don't we we do so it's an interesting one there isn't it because we have this person in the school who's called the mentor mm -hmm. just because that's their name and I suppose having heard those two descriptions from you there mentor versus coach so the mentor is saying do this like me copy me um, and the coach is not doing that the coach is is kind of doing a more subtle thing asking questions to help people work it out for themselves what is it that our student teachers need and when do they need it and what do they want is a more complicated question isn't it because obviously everyone loves the idea of the coach Mm -hmm. but I guess the first time you walk into a classroom full of teenagers, in our case, and you're wondering what on earth you're going to do to survive the next hour, the thing you want more than anything else is for somebody just to come up to you and say, just do this. Yes. And, you know, that that's rightly or wrongly, I would probably hazard a guess that a lot of early student teachers in, in the very early stages of their PGCE year want to know what their strengths and weaknesses were and have those clearly identified to them. Because an, another thing that we discussed in, in, in relation to coaching is that this also, coaching prompts a reflective process in relation to the person that's being coached. Unless they've got the tools after they've worked with the coach to be able to spot what's going well and what they need to do to improve without that coach present, 
it's actually they're, they're not going to be able to do it they're not going to be able to do it independently unless there's some kind of mentoring going on where they are given explicit advice so i suppose the thing is that you've you've got to give people the basics such that the classroom isn't complete carnage and they're not just uh, having a complete disaster there's nothing wrong with that at all they they, they need some tools it, it kind of feeds into this thing they talk about with pupil peer and self-assessment i mean that's held up as the great thing you know that we don't do all the assessments we get the pupils to assess themselves and assess their peers but of course if you just ask them to do that with no criteria and no tools and no understanding they haven't a clue what it is you want them to say or what they should be looking at and the results are really poor and i suppose it's similar it's got to be similar when we're assessing student teachers no one's going to thank in the early days no one's going to thank their mentor for just kind of sitting there with a mysterious smile on their face saying so how do you feel that went then i'm not going to tell you anything but if they stick at being a mentor, if they just stick at saying, you needed to do this, do it like this, then we're going to be missing a trick. Something that is interesting as well about the role of the coach is that it's based on mutual respect, it's collaborative, and it also suggests that the coach could learn something from the person being coached. Yeah, that's a thing I really like about my best mentors. I think you know, there's this slight caricature with the mentors that they're, they're, you know, sitting there saying, become a mini me. I want to see you just copying everything that I do. And I would say for the majority of my mentors, or pretty much all of them, that's not the case. They, they're going to give them things to copy to start with, or if it's all going horribly wrong, but they'd probably be disappointed and not a little bit freaked out, probably, if they looked into their classroom and they saw a student teacher just sort of copying all their mannerisms and their figures of speech and, and that kind of thing. And the mentors do tend to say to me that, that they take the students because they want to get some new ideas. So I suppose the ideal conversation is do it like this now, um, copy me until you're confident that things aren't going to go wrong. But if I still see you doing it like me, in six weeks time I'm going to be pretty bitterly disappointed because I want some new ways of doing things and I want to see you doing it your own way. Which perhaps um, given what you said Tom at the start about how we ourselves as the university tutors kind of speculate about what is our role you know in this in this triad of uh, of development the student teacher the mentor and us is that actually what we are also responsible for doing at university when we've got those students at university is giving them some new fresh ideas, you know, giving them access to really current research, giving them a space where they can be a little bit more free to innovate, to be creative, to take risks and to learn new things that they maybe can then take back to school and try out and have this kind of reciprocal learning relationship with their with their colleague the mentor and that perhaps that dimension is kind of invigorating the process and i don't see that as a as a one-way street uh, you know equally open to the student teacher coming back to university and sharing some of the innovative stuff that's going on in school that is then kind of helping to to sort of drip feed into their peers' experiences. Yeah, I think it has to be like that. And I will put my hand up and say that my first year here, when I was a new 
PGC lecturer um, and I'd been a classroom teacher for 10 years, it was a real struggle for me to get my head around what I was for. And I think I hung on for a very long time to this thing I had that I was a recent classroom teacher and I was probably desperate to kind of give loads of tips and tricks and advice in that department. But now I'm I'm three years out of the classroom and if I got up in front of a class, I could probably do okay, but the mentors are teaching every single day. So the question is, it's what you say, it's what, what do we bring to the table? And what the schools bring to the table is current classroom teaching, a bunch of pupils to try things out on, uh, constant lessons going on, and that's really good. And what do I bring to the table? I haven't got those things. I've got a space. I've not got bells going every hour, um, timetables, GCSE syllabuses to cover. So I've got experimental space and a slightly different perspective. And as long as we're kind of big enough, I think, to admit what we haven't got as well as what we have got, then we'll be absolutely fine. I think it's all about uh, leaving your ego at the door in this job. Agreed. So actually, just to kind of conclude and start to draw some of these threads together, I'm not sure that coaching versus mentoring is helpful. No, you can't survive with just the one. And, and I wonder, I'm just floating an idea, I wonder if actually calling our mentors, our school mentors, mentors is helpful either. Mm, it's interesting because when I'm interviewing candidates and I tell them about the course at the end of the day, I talk about the mentor and I always end up saying, and this is completely before we have this discussion about this, I always say to them, you have your mentor in school, they're kind of like your coach, is what I always say to them. And it's it's funny that I said that because I think it's probably true, actually. Mm, mm, mm. So I think what it looks like is that there's going to be this big, I always go back to this analogy of, of kind of a pendulum that's swinging constantly throughout the year between mentoring approaches and coaching approaches depending on the needs of the student teacher you know because you, you're going to probably start your year receiving a lot of mentoring and a lot of advice a lot of kind of do it like this um, which might be helpful but as you transition through the year, that approach might change. And indeed, at the start, there might be one or two coaching approaches that might leave you flound feeling like you're floundering, feeling like you don't know the answers yet. But I guess don't worry about that because it's all part of the process of you being able to eventually search for the answers yourself. Yeah, I know that I had a, a long heart to heart with my class this year. Um, we got halfway through the course and they were they were feeling frustrated because they'd found that kind of answers were starting to melt away a little bit. Perhaps they'd had a lot of answers early on and then they were kind of finding out that answer questions were being met with more questions or alternative answers, but with no clue from me about which one was the right one because there wasn't a right one and it's frustrating and they did get a little bit disheartened by it and we had to have a long chat about the fact that that's just not the way the world works in education so probably a word of warning really to anyone who's on the course at the moment or anyone who's coming on the course we aren't the gurus we don't have the answers but hopefully what we have got is the skills to help you ask the right questions and find the answers that are right at that particular moment and to understand that this world is about as far from black and white as it's possible to get. So this is our weekly wellbeing uh, thought 
for the week. And actually, we were really efficient when we were in Bolton and we have already pre-recorded this. So what you're about to hear um, are my musings about productivity as sparked by the lovely Tom, um, who read a book. Uh, So you'll hear slightly different sound quality, not necessarily worse sound quality, but Boltonian sound quality, in fact. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Because that's where we were when we recorded it. Very specific sound they have in Bolton. I think the air is different. So I have been chatting with Tom this week about my own well-being and about productivity and about how I can be more productive and make time for me and organise things in my head and just generally work in a way that is allowing me to do things that I like and make sure I get all my work done. And he has been reading a book that has helped him do such. Um, So I'm going to hand over to Tom and he's going to tell you all about it. Well, yeah, I I found this book a few years ago called Getting Things Done um, by David Allen. I think it's quite famous in the kind of I don't know the kind of managerial sort of productivity world and I know that there are some people that treat it as like a religious document and kind of do absolutely everything that it says there's people that just run their whole lives by this this kind of idea and I'm going to be honest and say I don't do that but I did find some quite useful things in there um, for that age-old problem with teachers which is we have far too much to do and not enough time to do it in and we we have to manage an enormous amount of things so I tend to just cherry pick the best bits out of it and yeah this was an idea that I quite liked which is this idea that at the end of the week you should kind of shut your door uh, or whatever it is that you've got to to block people out get away from the, the bits of emails and things like that and just kind of take a wider view uh, about what you're doing, where you are with things, um, what's coming up next week, and what you need to do. Because I think, I don't know about you, but I find that it's so easy to get into a into a place where you can't see the wood for the trees. You're just firefighting the emails, the, the single little jobs you've got to do. And we tend to feel a little bit guilty sometimes that, that we're just going to stop and we're just going to think and that someone's going to look through the door and see that we're not frantically scribbling or typing or something like that and think we're just being a complete slacker. But I certainly find it useful when I get the chance to just sort of stop. I flick my calendar across to next week, kind of see what's coming up, um, work out whether it's doable, what I need to get ready, what maybe I need to bail out of before I get there because it's not going to happen. Manage people's expectations. Yes, about... absolutely. Manage the expectations. And, and you know, if you bail out of things early, I always, I always compare it to a bit like a kind of game of Tetris, really. You know, the, the little blocks are coming at you right at the bottom of the screen. You've got a real problem. And if they're coming at you really high up on the screen, you can do something about them. And it's like that with stuff in your diary, isn't it? If you can... If, Candy Crush would probably Candy Crush. Better. I've never played Candy Crush. I, I, I can't say I have, but I'm, I'm, trying, to, I'm trying to get... Down with the kids. Is maybe? Tetris really old school? I don't know. It probably don't is, know. isn't it? But... Wow, it, it appeals to me. But <laughs> just this idea, I think, that if you deal with stuff when it's a little bit further away, it's less stressful. Um, yeah. You're not firefighting, and also people are going to get less annoyed if you kind of say, "Oh, that thing next Thursday, can I rearrange it?" Rather than that thing in twenty minutes' time, I'm twenty miles away and I'm not going to make it. Uh, I think what resonated with me from this suggestion, Tom, is that. Essentially, what you're saying is give yourself a moment to look at the areas of the week that could be stressful. Yeah. Anticipate <coughs> the, the week ahead. And the other thing that you said that you haven't mentioned, that I want you to mention, it was about kind of closing the loop of some things, you know, closing some of those loops that if you don't put them to bed before the weekend, 
I think Friday is, is maybe the important day, actually. <laughs> yeah. So you close off some of those loops, put it to bed in your head, and then you can go into the weekend. You might have a bit of work to do on the weekend, but you've already thought about that. You've already, you've already in that process, sold yourself on that. But you can go into that weekend not having to mull over all of these things because you've already done it. Yeah, that's one of the big things that he says in the book, actually, is this... This idea that the source of the stress, when we're all really stressed about having too much to do, the reason that we're stressed is because we're trying to hold it all in our heads all the time because we're afraid we're going to forget it. And he's got all kinds of crazy systems for lists and things like that that all, you know, I, I don't really go for myself. But just that idea that if you take it out of your head and put it somewhere and you know that your system works, then you're confident that you don't have to be thinking about it all the time and then your brain just kind of lets it go. And it's that process of letting go. I mean, I know that the student teachers often say to me when, when someone's really melting down their workload, that the thing they often say to me is I can't switch off. That's the thing they can't do. And, you know, we all got to switch our brains off sometimes. But you have to give your brain permission to switch off. Yes. And you can't give yourself permission to do that until you're sure that something's not going to fall down the plug hole and be forgotten and then you're going to get told off, you know, sometime next week. That's where the stress comes in. Yes. So I suppose that wider point is really don't let other people judge you if you appear to be sitting there not doing anything or drinking a cup of tea or something like that. You're not necessarily being a slacker. You're, you're putting your brain in order in order that you can actually do your job better and, and having a rest from things is part of doing your job better. So, yeah, something I'm going to do next year, I think, is is more regularly find that little slot of time um, to just go up a little bit in, in the level and review things from a slightly higher standpoint and maybe talk them through with somebody. I mean, if it doesn't work just thinking about it, you could always just talk them through with somebody. Over a cuppa. Over a cuppa. So that was the well-being slot. Uh, one of our other regular bits is the shout-out. And as explained in the last episode, we currently have nobody to shout-out to who's in school because it's the summer. They're all on holiday. So we're going to do exactly the same as we did last time and rummage around in the archives and find something good that a previous student has done. Yet again, it's a drama student. They just produce all this stuff and it's amazing. So, Emma, who have we got this time? Well, this time, Tom, we've got the lovely Liam Brewer. He is from this year's cohort, the 2017-18 cohort. Uh, and again, like Ruth from last week's episode, uh, or episode one, he decided to perform his end-of-year presentation about his year's highlights in the form of a song. So he'd adapted It's a Wonderful World. What's the title of that song, Tom? Wonderful World? Louis Armstrong? Yeah. I it's think, a Wonderful World? I think that is the title. I think that is the title. Yeah. <laughs> so he was very creative and decided to uh, adapt the lyrics to make something really lovely and meaningful and beautifully sung, I might add, about his experiences on the course. So a cross-curricular piece of work today then. Indeed. Let's have a listen. Enjoy. Assignments I've 
Right, so this is our something to try slot. Having now listened to the lovely tones of Liam Brewer, we're gonna move smoothly on into our takeaway slot. So I'm gonna hand over to Tom here, who's gonna give you something to think about and maybe try next week. So this is your, what you call a calorie-free takeaway, isn't it? It I is indeed. I really enjoyed that last week. I'm gonna mm. pinch that. Right, so something to try, and these are all just little ideas uh, that you can use. Sometimes they're crazy, sometimes they're sensible. Just in case you've run out of thoughts of things to put in your lesson plans and you want to try something new. And mine is quite a simple one this time around. When we are planning lessons and the timings of our lessons, one of the things we often drum into the students is the idea that you shouldn't spend too long on anything. So the idea that people will get unfocused and start kind of wasting time or not using the time as productively as possible. And so lots of lesson plans end up divided into five minute bits or seven minute bits or whatever. And that's great. And I wouldn't want to stop you doing that at all. But something that I used to do with my classes in music was to add a little bit of tension to proceedings add a sense of urgency just to help them stay on task by putting on my projector a timer for the whole hour of the lesson, which is slightly different to what we normally do, where we, we will often use three-minute timers or five-minute timers. This I used particularly when we were learning a piece for performance as a class. And I would give them an incentive, but in parallel with that, I would pile the pressure on as well. And I used to find that the combination of incentive and pressure was really good for keeping the pace of the lesson moving. So the incentive was that we would learn this piece for performance as a class and by the end of the lesson we would have performed it, recorded it and posted the audio up on Twitter for the pupils to show to their parents and friends. And they used to see that as a really big incentive because they really wanted their recording to be up there on the internet for all to listen to. It also used to get around the problem that we don't have books in music and we don't have things that the pupils can take home and show to their parents. So often there would be nothing to show from our subject. It's very digitally, digitally competent. I am supposedly quite digitally competent, but it was just a nice way of getting around it because it always used to rankle a little bit that history and English would have all this lovely work that they could show. And in music, I would just be able to tell the parents what we'd done and they'd say oh that sounds lovely but they'd never get to experience any of it and this is similar in drama actually I saw this quote in in a book the other day saying that drama takes place immediately in time and space and that's absolutely the case for music as well it's ephemeral if ephemeral it's ephemeral <laughs> it's ephemeral it's there and it's amazing and then it's gone and it's lost forever so that got around that and I would stick this timer up, which will be counting down from, you know, 55 minutes normally after I'd taken the register. And I would divide my lesson up as normal into you've got three minutes to practice this line or you've got two minutes to make sure that that's ready or have a little rehearsal or something. But all the time behind me, the timer was counting down the hour of the lesson and they knew that they needed to get this thing performance ready and a recording done before about five minutes before the bell, which would be when we'd need to pack away. And I used to find that they were so focused when they could see that thing ticking around behind me that we never failed to get a whole piece learnt in an hour and recorded and posted up for everyone to hear. So if you're finding that your lessons sag a little bit, particularly in the second half when the pupils are starting to get a bit tired or, or a little bit losing focus, Maybe try, instead of timing your three minutes and your five minutes, maybe time the whole lesson so that they can see how long they've got uh, left to get that lovely incentive. 
time I really liked that, uh, I might in fact try it myself in one of my university sessions. And actually, time is an, is an interesting thing because there's a there's maybe a, a fear surrounding time and pace for teachers. Will I fit everything in? Am I going to get to the end of my lesson having successfully done everything that I planned to do? But actually making the pupils kind of complicit in that process is, is quite an interesting thing to do. Um, so I will certainly be trying that yeah, forward. I think it gets everyone on the same side. The incentive is a really important thing, the, mm. the fact that they want to get something within that time. So it works mm. as a kind of dual thing. But yes, feel free to pinch with pride, as you I put it last time. Absolutely will be pinching that with pride. So that's been our second podcast, Tom. We're done. We are done. Hopefully something in there is useful to you, whether it is getting the ideas straight in your mind about whether you want to be coached or mentored, whether it's something you want to steal off me, or some ideas for dealing with your productivity and well-being. Hopefully there's something in there for most of you. We're going to be back with the next episode at some point, but who knows where we're going to be? We could be anywhere. We've been in Bolton, we've been in Emma's house... I think we need to uh, ask you for ideas about where to record the podcast from next time and then try and do them. I'm going to vote for a boat in the middle of Roth Park Lake. That's where I want to go next time. But in the meantime, we will speak to you again soon. Uh, that was Emma. I'm Tom. We're getting the identities right this time. All the responsibilities on me. <laughs> See you next time. Bye-bye. That was Emma and Tom's PGC podcast presented by Emma Thayer and Tom Breeze. Our thanks go to everyone who listened to episode one and still came back for more. To Liam Brewer for his amazing singing. To Jordan Allers from the University of South Wales for clarifying the difference between a coach and a mentor. And to Monkey the Dog for keeping quiet throughout our recording. Kind of. And not trying to eat the microphones. We're in detention for the rest of the week for carving I Heart Donaldson on the desk with a compass. Until next time, take care and enjoy teaching.